This is Lecture 10A by Robert Benoit on Deuteronomy. Lecture 10A. While the Aramaic treaties cite the gods of both places, the Assyrian treaties only cite the gods of the Assyrian king. There are certain features of the Aramaic treaties that seem closer to the Hittite treaties. In the selection of gods called upon as witnesses to the treaty, the Aramaic treaty cites the gods of both the suzerain and the vassal, the great king and the subject. The Hittite treaties also name the gods of both partners as witnesses, while the Assyrian treaties name only the Assyrian gods as witnesses. In other rather technical points of style of formulation in the Aramaic treaties of Sephiri that I don't want to go into, but there is a lot of phraseology that is closer to that of the Hittite treaty form than to that of the Assyrian treaty form in style and formulation. So you find certain segments of the Sephiri treaties closer to the Hittite treaties than to the Assyrian treaties. Now, let's talk a little bit about conclusions in regard to the Sephiri treaties. These exhibit certain close affinities with the earlier Hittite treaties, but at the same time, there are important differences, particularly the lack of the historical prologue, the basic obligation, and the one-sided nature of the stipulations. Now, I didn't mention the one-sided nature of the stipulations, but there are many more clauses that protect the rights of the head partner in the Safiri treaties than compared to the Hittite treaties. Well, number three of the outline, and that's implications of the treaty covenant analogy for the date of Deuteronomy. To draw all this together, present evidence does indicate that the Hittite suzerainty treaty represents a unique early form of the treaty document that isn't duplicated in the later 7th century Assyrian treaties of Esarhaddon or in the Aramaic Sephiri treaties, which is what Klein calls the classic form. That is, the classic form is the Hittite form. And connected with that difference in form is a different spirit undergirding the treaties. The gratitude and respect of the vassal for the suzerain is an essential element in the Hittite treaties. That is quite different than the Assyrian and the Sephiri treaties. So Klein speaks with good reason of the evolution of the documentary form of the suzerainty treaty from the Hittite all the way down to the Assyrian period. And while the differences should not be exaggerated, and Klein admits that, for he says, and I'm quoting him here, Indeed, there is one species that we meet throughout Old Testament time, and, in spite of that one species, there are certain parallel elements, but these are the differences that can be pointed to. I think there is reason to define this discernible evolution. And then Deuteronomy corresponds much more closely in its structure and spirit to the earlier Hittite treaties than it does to the later 8th century Sephiri treaties or the 7th century Assyrian treaties. And I end the quote, and that summarizes Klein's thesis. So Klein's conclusion, and this is page 43 in his book, The Treaty of the Great King, I think has a great deal of merit and deserves more attention than it has received. He puts it this way, and I quote him again, While it is necessary to recognize its essential continuity and pattern between the earlier and later treaties, it is proper to distinguish the Hittite treaties of the 2nd millennium B.C., 
as the classic form, and without any doubt, the book of Deuteronomy belongs to the classic stage of this documentary evolution. Here, then, is significant confirmation of a prima facie case for the mosaic origin of the Deuteronomic Treaty of the Great King. End quote. And that's the nature of Klein's argument. That's the basis on which it rests. And I think he has made a good case. Now, our time is quickly running out, but let me, before getting into responses of some contemporary critical scholars who reject this conclusion and why, let me just mention J.A. Thompson again. Some of you may have already read this in his commentary on Deuteronomy, and that's in the Tyndale Commentary series on pages 51 and 52 in that introductory section of his. He expresses reservation about the strengths of Klein's argument. Here's what he says, and I'm quoting here. The possibility must be allowed that Deuteronomy was cast in the shape of an ancient treaty by someone who wrote long after Moses' day. End quote. Someone writing later put this material in the earlier classical form. In addition, he questions the view that the historical prologue was uniquely characteristic of the treaties of the second millennium B.C., and he cites an article by A.F. Campbell on the historical prologue in a 7th century treaty. Now, as I indicated just a few minutes ago, the historical prologue was in the Hittite treaty, but it was not known in any part of the 7th or 8th century treaties of Sephiri or Assyria. Thompson cites an article by A. of Campbell, and that article is An Historical Prologue in the 7th Century Treaty. Thompson then concludes, and I quote him again, Hence, the fact that Deuteronomy has a historical introduction is not necessarily an argument for a date in the second millennium, although it may be. End quote. In other words, if you have the treaty back here with a historical prologue, and by back here I mean the Assyrian period, the fact that you have the historical prologue in Deuteronomy is not necessarily an argument for the Mosaic date, although it may be. That is, if the historical prologue is not unique to the Hittite time, then finding a historical prologue in Deuteronomy does not mean it was written in the Hittite period at the time of Moses, for if a historical prologue is found in the Assyrian treaties of the 7th century B.C., then Mosaic authorship could be then, since it has a historical prologue. That's the summary of the argument by Thompson. Now, in response to that argument, I think it should be noted that the historical prologue found by this fellow Campbell that Thompson cites that is, a historical prologue in a 7th century document, is not a clear-cut example. I could refer you to an article that discusses that and goes into more detail. A comment by another fellow, and this is confusing, E.F. Campbell is compared to A.F. Campbell. These are two different articles in two different periods. But E.F. Campbell says, and I quote here, the reading is far from clear that there is a historical prologue in this 7th century treaty. End quote. In addition, I think this ought to be noted, that while the possibility that someone cast Deuteronomy in the shape of the treaty form long after Moses' day cannot be totally ruled out, you can't totally rule that out as a theoretical possibility, 
But somebody could have, in a later time, used the Hittite treaty form and took the material and ran with it later on. As I said, you can't rule that out as a theoretical possibility. Still, Klein's position is scarcely invalidated in this way, and his model still has a great deal of evidence in its favor. Now, Klein comments in his more recent book, called The Structure of Biblical Authority, on page 10. And he says the following, and I quote him here. If it is once recognized that the Deuteronomic Treaty must have been produced whole for a particular occasion, the pervasive orientation of the book to the situation of Israel in the Mosaic Age, and especially the central concern of this treaty with, of all things, the dynastic succession of Joshua, which is always awkward for advocates of the 7th century origin of the book, becomes quite explicable for them. End quote. In other words, if you're going to take the structure of Deuteronomy as a whole, and all this pushes towards the Mosaic era, and particularly the matter of dynastic succession of Joshua and Moses, that becomes something quite inexplicable to someone who wants to hold to a 7th century origin. Why at that time concern oneself about succession of Joshua from Moses if one is writing in the 7th century? Well, our time is up for now, and this has taken me much longer than I anticipated because I wanted to discuss, before your presentation start, this matter of centralization of worship. I have two more class hours. I may not make it, but next hour we'll take a look at what some scholars say about Klein's model, particularly some scholars that reject his model. I want to start this hour by taking a look at what I said towards the end of last time, and that is we want to take a look at some scholars that reject Klein's model. Deuteronomy corresponds to the classic stage of the treaty form. That's what Klein is saying. We've noted that under A of the outline, the comparison of the Assyrian and Sephiri treaties with the Hittite treaties. Then little b of the outline is responses of some contemporary critical scholars who reject the conclusion that the evolution of this treaty form points towards a mosaic origin for the book of Deuteronomy. We can't do this in detail, as you can well imagine. I want to get on to our next topic, which is the question of centralization of worship, but we'll have to see how it goes. At any rate, we need to mention some of the people that have proposed theories against that of Klein. One man named as J.C. Plasteris in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly of 1967, and he's reviewed Kitchen's book, Ancient Orient and Old Testament. That is a book you are familiar with. Kitchen, in his book, Ancient Orient and Old Testament, really takes a very similar position to that of Klein, arguing on the basis of a treaty structure for a Mosaic era for the origin of Deuteronomy. Plastera says, and I'll just quote a paragraph from him, he says the following, and I'm quoting, Kitchen argues against J.D. McCarthy and in favor of the earlier nuanced position of G.E. Mendenhall that the treaty forms similar to the Old Testament covenant traditions are currently only during the second millennium and not afterward. Well and good. But then Kitchen goes on to conclude that the covenant narratives could not have taken six literary forms only in the 6th century, since the writers could have had no knowledge of the long-since obsolete covenant forms. 
Kitchen seems to have overlooked the very essential fact that no matter at what date the Hittite covenant form may have gone out of current use in the ancient Near East, Israel would always have retained the same basic covenant form in her cult. So that every layer of tradition, J, E, and D, or the redactional combination of these earlier sources, would all reflect the same basic covenant structure. End quote. What he's really arguing is simply this. The form that we find in biblical material corresponds to the evolution of the treaty with the Hittite form back in the second millennium. But what he is saying is that Kitchen's argument presumes that Israel could not have picked up the form later than the second millennium and then have this form preserved in some fashion in the cult and then adopt it much later in time when Deuteronomy is written. So, he says, to argue that Deuteronomy must be composed in the second millennium ignores the possibility of preservation of this form much later in the cult. So, Deuteronomy could have been composed later. Now, I think that you have to grant that is, again, a theoretic possibility. But I think what that position leaves open is the question of when the covenant form was adopted by Israel. Where did this form come from? Why was it adopted in the cult? When was it originally adopted in Israel? And in addition, the objections we made earlier towards some simply cultic derivation of the form that de-emphasizes the historical setting of the occasion and the basis for the whole covenant relationship certainly has to be brought to bear on this issue. The cultic origin hypothesis just doesn't do justice to Klein's argument. Even if you assume a cultic origin for the form, as I asked before, where does that come from? I think you still are faced with the force of Klein's position. So even granting Plasteris' position doesn't exclude an early date possibility, but merely provides a rationale for a late date in view of the admitted antiquity of the form. He's just giving a rationale for holding on to this late date while admitting the antiquity of the form itself. It doesn't force you into the late date, but it gives a rationale for a late date while admitting that it could be looked at in another way. So there is certain inconclusiveness to this kind of argumentation, and I think you have to keep that in mind. Even when you argue for a mosaic date, you ultimately cannot prove in any sort of final sense that Deuteronomy is mosaic by arguing simply on the basis of its form. However, I think you can build a case that has a lot of weight going for it. So, that's one representative objection to this position of Klein and the reason that he follows it. I'd say the persistence in finding this Hittite-like form and the findings of the treaty form at all stages and all kinds of different applications through Israel's history points towards the conclusion that it really is Hittite in origin. For example... If you take the prayer of Solomon at the time of the dedication of the temple that we find in 1 Kings chapter 8, and the prayer roughly follows this Hittite form. Now, I'm sure that Solomon was not consciously thinking of treaties or even perhaps of the Sinai covenant document or anything like that. But in the character of Israel's faith and the sequence of this, you find something like, I, Yahweh, have done this for you, and you, Israel, have these obligations, and these are the resulting blessings and curses if you don't follow the obligations. 
That particular form, Yahweh as the benevolent suzerain, Israel as the vassal, was so embedded in the way Israel worshipped the Lord and thought of the Lord that it reflects itself in many ways in the Old Testament. You find this all through Israel's history. If you're going to say that the whole form of the book is late, then, of course, you take Solomon's prayer and say Solomon did not really pray in that form. Rather, it's a late construct of what the late Deuteronomic editor mythically constructed of what Solomon should have said. So you wrench Solomon's prayer out of its present context in which it is set in the narrative in 1 Kings chapter 8. We move on to another person that has raised an issue, and that is R. Frankena. This is in your bibliography. And the title of the work that Frankena has is The Vassal Treaties of Esarhaddon and the Dating of Deuteronomy. That's his article. The Vassal Treaties of Esarhaddon, as we know, are late 7th century, and they're Assyrian. That is in this volume that I just took off the reserve shelf, and that is Alt Testamentium Studium, volume 14. These are collections of articles that appear yearly. Many of the articles are in English. There are a lot of useful articles in these 14 volumes. This article by Frankena is in volume 14, which is pages 122 to 154, and came out in 1965. He argues in his article on the Vassal Treaties of Esarhaddon for a 7th century date for Deuteronomy on the basis of certain points of correspondence between curse formulations in the Treaties of Esarhaddon and in Deuteronomy. Certain curse formulations found in the Esarhaddon Treaties, he points out, have close similarities to some of the curses found in Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Now, here's his conclusion on page 153, and I quote, the religious reform of Josiah was directed against Assyria, and it is therefore tempting to regard the renewed covenant with Yahweh as a substitution of the former treaty with the king of Assyria. That the text of this covenant should betray knowledge of the Assyrian treaties, which it seems to replace, seems only natural to me. The dating of Deuteronomy, moreover, would in that case find corroboration in a rather unexpected way, in the time of Josiah. At the time, Assyrian power dominated Israel from asserting its independence, and in that sense, Deuteronomy is a treaty document of allegiance to Yahweh, no longer allegiance to Assyria. End quote. But the writer of Deuteronomy, as Frankina develops his thesis, almost copied a lot of these curses right out of the Assyrian treaty that he was familiar with. And so we quote again, So that Deuteronomy is subsequent to and dependent upon the Assyrian treaty of Esarhaddon. End quote again from Frankena. So Frankena argues on that basis for a date of Deuteronomy at the time of Josiah rather than the time of Moses. Now, the interesting thing is, he never discusses the implications of the differences that we've talked about in the structure between the Hittite treaties and the Assyrian treaties. He just doesn't discuss the lack of the historical prologue, for example. He makes one comment that even closely bears on that subject. On page 136 of the article, he says, and I'm quoting Franken again, the omission of the blessings in the Assyrian treaties might be due to the fact that the treaty would bestow automatically blessings on the faithful vassal, end quote. 
In other words, Franken recognizes that difference of the blessings being in the Hittite treaties, but not in the Assyrian treaties, and of course the blessings are in Deuteronomy as well. So why aren't there blessings in the Assyrian treaties? Well, maybe the idea is that the treaty would automatically bestow blessings on the faithful vassal. But he really doesn't get into any discussion of how you're going to explain the difference in total structure and form if Deuteronomy is essentially borrowed from the Assyrian document and not based on Hittite documents. Now, Klein was aware of this article by Frankena by the time he wrote his book, The Structure of Biblical Authority. And in Klein's book, The Structure of Biblical Authority, he says the following, and I quote Klein, As for the similarities of a group of Deuteronomic curses to a section of curses in the later Assyrian treaty, this is not adequate evidence to date even this particular material late. End quote. Well, why? Klein goes on, I quote him again. For the tradition of curse formularies extend far back into the second millennium B.C. End quote. In other words, there is a traditional way of forming curses. And that kind of stereotypical traditional way of doing that is something that goes way back. Moreover, Klein goes on, since the critics in question suppose that Deuteronomy developed over a period of time through a process of additions and modifications, they would be in no position to appeal to the presence of demonstrably 7th century curses formulations if there were such as compelling evidence for the late origin of the treaty structure of the book as a whole. End quote again from Klein. So that seems to me the point to be made is this. You can look at these formulations, curse formulations, yourself if you want to in detail and see how valid you think either argument is. There are general similarities. The wording is different. It's been modified, but there are certain similarities in the curses that you find in the Hittite and in the Assyrian treaty forms. Seems to me that's to be explained much more readily by a rather stereotyped common nature of curses in the ancient Near East, generally, that are included in the book of Deuteronomy, which goes back even to the Hittite treaties. And we prefer that rather than on the dependence in any way on the Assyrian treaties. As Frankina says, nothing about the explanation for the correspondence and structure of Deuteronomy as a whole with that of the Hittite treaties as compared to the Assyrian treaties, we will drop him at this point. Now, Kitchen in Ancient Orient and Old Testament comments on Frankina's article in a footnote on page 100. And he says the following, and I'm quoting Kitchen. Useful comparisons between the curses of Deuteronomy and the Neo-Assyrian treaties are made by R. Frankina and Moshe Weinfield. However, they betray some naivete in assuming that similarity automatically spells Hebrew dependence on late Assyrian treaties. The old Babylonian data cited by Weinfield already points towards a different answer to a long-standing tradition, that is, of curses, going well back into the second millennium at least, which could have been known in the Westlands even before Moses. End quote. So Kitchen argues the same way that we have above, but you should be aware that this treaty material has been used by Frankina and Weinfield and both use it to argue for a late date. Well, here is von Rad. We've seen him before, and I won't go into detail, 
He sees the structure, and he admits this structure is analogous to the Hittite treaty structure. There must be a relationship, but he holds on to this sort of cultic argument and argues for a late date for Deuteronomy. He doesn't depend on the Assyrian treaty, but in his view, the whole development of the book of Deuteronomy is such that all these layers of material that structure it are rooted in the cult with a long process of development. He doesn't say how far it goes or what the original cause was, but it's the cultic origin type of viewpoint that Von Rod has. Another recent book on Deuteronomy is by D.W. Nicholson entitled Deuteronomy and Tradition. We've come across his name before as well. His view is very similar to Von Rod, but with a slight deviation. And he concludes, and I'm quoting him here, the form of Deuteronomy is derived from the cult and follows the liturgical pattern of the festival of the renewal of the covenant. End quote. But in his view, the Levites are not the ones who are really responsible for the preaching that you find in Deuteronomy and the preservation of this material. He regards prophetic circles in northern Israel as the responsible agents for the preservation and transmission of good traditions underlying the book. He suggests that these circles of prophets fled to the south after the destruction of the northern kingdom, in other words, after 722 B.C. and the fall of Samaria. These prophets eventually drew up their program for reform during the time of Manasseh. This book of the law and the temple in Jerusalem that was then found during the time of Josiah, these are the prophetic circles from the north that developed this material after they came south in 722 B.C. They drew up this program for reform, which is basically what you now have in Deuteronomy. That was deposited in the temple and eventually found during the reign of Josiah in 621 B.C. So it's in a sense basically the old Wellhausen position, but instead of saying that it was all late material composed right at the time of 621, it's got a century-long history behind it. This whole prophetic movement is behind Deuteronomy, and they are the ones that developed it, but, as I said, in the time of Manasseh, about a hundred years before Josiah. The original form comes out of the cult. How far back that goes and where it originated from is left open. Well, one last name I want to mention, and that's Moshe Weinfield, and it's a rather important name in these studies. He wrote the book Deuteronomy in the Deuteronomic School, which I believe is from Oxford University Press. came out in the last few years. He has opposed any cultic derivation of the covenant form. In other words, he opposed von Rad or Nicholson or whoever had that particular idea. He says that the structure of Deuteronomy follows a literary tradition of covenant writing rather than imitating a period of cultic ceremony. In other words, there is a literary tradition behind the structure of Deuteronomy, not some sort of cultic ceremony that's continually repeated. Instead of then ascribing the book to Levitical circles as von Rad or prophetic as Nicholson does, he attributes it to the court scribes at the time of Hezekiah and Josiah. If a literary pattern lies behind the book of Deuteronomy and behind the form of Deuteronomy, he says, it would be much more reasonable to assume that a literary circle, which was familiar with treaty writing, existed. In other words, court scribes composed the book of Deuteronomy.
Now, Weinfield rejects the view of Mendenhall, Klein, Bright, and Albright that the Hittite Treaty is unique and that the covenant form of Deuteronomy, therefore, corresponds to the classic form of the second millennium B.C. Hittite form. He rejects that view. He claims that treaty form is basically only one form all the way through this historical period. He dismisses the lack of a historical prologue in the Assyrian treaties as not significant. It is not important that there is no historical prologue, according to Weinfield. You could debate that, but I think it's enormously important, as we have already discussed. Weinfield also concludes, really, in agreement with Frankena, although on a slightly different basis, he agrees that Deuteronomy reflects contemporary Assyrian treaties rather than earlier Hittite treaties. He rejects this idea of evolution of the documentary form of the treaties, and he concludes that Deuteronomy has a literary background that is the product of scribes in Jerusalem. These scribes in Jerusalem were familiar with Assyrian treaties. It's the Assyrian treaties that are behind Deuteronomy, and that's Weinfield's basic thesis. Klein, in his book, The Structure of Biblical Authority, page 14, comments on Weinfield, and he says, Quote, the oration character of Deuteronomy, Weinfield explains as a literary device. End quote. Well, Deuteronomy does have an oration character to it. Moses is giving these addresses and these speeches. Quoting again from Klein, Weinfield explains that as a literary device. Programmatic speeches were placed in the mouths of famous persons to express the ideological views of the author. End quote. Now, that's really Wellhausen again that we have seen Wellhausen claim programmatic speeches placed in the mouth of Moses and others, and in the mouth of Joshua, and also in the mouth of Samuel, to say not what these people said, but what the authors of the books claim. That's all from a later time, and that's being represented as early. In short, it's a pious fraud. On this point, Klein continues, Von Rad comes closer to the truth. For while he too deems fictional the casting of Deuteronomy in the form of a farewell speech from Moses, he does at least formally integrate this speech with the covenantal elements of the book. He identifies the speech as an officer bears farewell. You have Moses here giving his farewell. Funrad advocates that, and he explains the presence of the covenant formulary within this and other such speeches by reference to the attested practice of renewing covenants when vassal leaders transferred their official power to a successor. Unfortunately, von Rod fails to recognize in the oration form the true explanation of the oratory Deuteronomic Treaty. The speaker does not derive from Levitical preaching, nor from a late literary circle of court scribes, but from the historical circumstance that Deuteronomy is the documentary deposit of a covenant renewal, which was also Moses' farewell to Israel. The element of perinesis, or exhortation, already present to some extent in the ancient treaties, was naturally exploited to the fullest by Moses on that stirring occasion. End quote. So that's basically Klein's response to Weinfield. The situation in which you have Moses giving an address to people at the point of his departure on the occasion of the covenant renewal is a far better situation in life, or Zitzimleben, to which to ascribe the book of Deuteronomy than to court scribes sitting in Jerusalem 
at the time of Josiah and copying from Assyrian treaties. In the structure of biblical authority, Klein takes this idea of the treaty covenant analogy and the concept from the treaty documents and asserts the text is not something to be tampered with. Once the text is put down, it is set. It was not to be added to, changed, or modified. And he takes that idea and applies it to the idea of canon in Scripture. Once Scripture is written and given, it's something that does not go through all this process of reformulation. So the structure of biblical authority is tied into that. As you can see, this debate on the date of Deuteronomy turns on several things. The historical prologue. How important is that? Biblical covenants and Hittite treaties have it. Weinfield argues this really makes no difference. The form is still one form. Well, I don't think he realizes the significance, not just of this element in the form, but the function of this element in the form. You cannot just cancel that out and ignore it. But that's one point of debate. And there's one continuous form from the Hittites down to the Assyrian, or is there development? There is a difference of opinion on that. Second, even those who say the form does change say that does not therefore prove that the biblical material is of mosaic origin. But then you haven't answered these questions. When, where, and why did that form become part of Israel's history? Even if Deuteronomy comes at some later point, preservation of the form by the Levites or prophets, well, where did that start? That is the question. What situation in history, what Zitzin Laban of Israel, can you posit other than the conclusion of the covenant at Sinai that really gives you a legitimate entrance of that form into Israelite use? I think there is the strength of Klein's argument, not to the point of conclusive proof, but it is certainly the most satisfactory model that deals with all the factors involved when it comes to dating the book of Deuteronomy. Well, I'm going to go on to the matter of centralization of worship in the next hour, and you can make this Roman numeral 3 in your outline, and we'll cover that next time. That is the end of Lecture 10A by Robert Vinoy on Deuteronomy, Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary.